Well, good morning, church. Happy icy morning to you. Today and next Sunday, uh, I am beginning a new sermon series on the book of Esther. Uh, Pastor John, of course, in a couple weeks, will continue his series in the Gospel of Luke. But uh, here we are in the book of Esther this morning, and for the next few months, however long it takes, uh, we're going to travel through this fascinating story about Esther and Mordecai and this King Ahasuerus and all of these other people and how God deals with each one of them and accomplishes his will. And so I hope you are already turned to the book of Esther. If you haven't turned there already, it's, uh, it's right before Job, which is right before the Psalms. So if you open your Bible halfway, uh, you go to the left a little bit and get right before Job and you will find this, this little book of the story of Esther. Now, by way of introduction, just just to the whole book here, we we need to spend some time understanding what's going on. And and as an example of of what we're going to find in the book of, of, of Esther, I've always been really kind of envious of my wife's family connections. Her favorite memories uh, as a child involve all kinds of aunts and uncles and cousins and all sorts of different varieties of of relatives. And these are connections that she still maintains. And her identity is very much uh, uh, rooted in those family relationships. But for me, it's it's a pretty different story. And the reason for that is that even though I've met my close relatives a little bit over my childhood, I've never really known them because they grew up so far away from me, and I grew up so far away from them. But recently, I had a very unexpected joy of getting to reconnect with some of my family, albeit in a small way. You see, uh, when my dad died, I, I got to meet a second cousin whom I had never met before. His name is Dwayne, and he actually lives over in Bristow. And it turns out that his father spent his career in the Northern Virginia and D.C. area. But his dad, my dad's cousin, his dad, Dwayne's dad, recently died. And so Dwayne asked me if I would do the graveside service. Now, I took this as a uh, solemn honor. And so a small crowd and I, a crowd of family and friends, we gathered in the old cemetery in the city of Fairfax and we laid Dwayne's dad to rest. But as solemn as as this occasion was, it was also a time of kind of wide-eyed joy for me because for the first time I was really among family. And these were ferals to boot. I mean, that's really rare to be in a gathering of ferals. And so never in my life had I been in the company of so many at once who not only shared my last name, but also my DNA. It was a new experience for me. It was like finding a room in your house that you never knew existed, and you find out it's a beautiful, beautiful room. It was really cool. And so it, this, this experience filled me with joy because, you know, I've, I've known all my life, of course, that, that I'm a feral. But for the very first time in my life, I now have a small taste of knowing what it's like to be a feral and to be a part of the feral family. 
Now, my story here is a little window into the sort of awakening that will happen in the story of Esther. The book of Esther is a true story of how God keeps his promises and reawakens his people to their true identity as the people of God. Now, it's easy for us to think of Esther as the, as the, the overwhelming hero of this story, and certainly there's some truth to that. Movies that have been made about the book of Esther and even some Bible commentaries portray her primarily in this way. But even though God is never mentioned in this fascinating story, it's God who is the real hero. Because what he's doing is demonstrating his faithfulness in ways that only the faithful can recognize. We don't see God working in dramatic ways in the story of Esther like he does in other places in the Old Testament. He works quietly behind the scenes, but it's by faith that we can see his almighty hand and how he works all these circumstances out to accomplish his will. And to do that, God, as he most often does, uses unlikely people, people even like you and me. And so as we open this fascinating story today, we're going to meet Jews who've, who've been through a lot. They've endured for several hundred years of, of kings who have done what was evil in the sight of God. They didn't set the example for them about how to worship God. They experienced, as a result of that, 70 years of slavery in the Babylonian exile, and then another 50 years of assimilation into the pagan culture of Persia. You see, the Jews had generally just kind of blended into the culture around them. They no longer seem to be a people set apart. And the reason for this is they no longer necessarily kept the Sabbath holy. They didn't necessarily follow God's law in the way that God commanded them to. There were a few exceptions. But overall, they had in large part lost connection with who they really were. And that is that they are God's chosen people. This is what they needed to re rediscover. And you know, we as followers of Christ are susceptible to the same kind of thing, aren't we? The pagan culture around us uh, has a far greater influence on us than we probably realize. It's easy for us to buy into the idea that the splendor of the world, uh, measured in wealth and political power, is what's going to bring us life and prosperity and vitality. But the book of Esther begins in this ancient time at about 483 BC things are very different culturally then or well maybe not so much we're going to see a lot of similarities between their time and ours but the, sto the story's roots go as deep as God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 when God declares that he's going to call out a special people for himself and make Abraham's descendants a great nation and give them even a land to live in. The story of Esther is also bound to the story of Moses when, when God gave his people the law uh, and the Ten Commandments to rule and to govern their relationship with God and with each other. Esther's story is connected as well to the faith of Daniel and how God saved him from the lion's den because of his faith and how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worshipped only God, the only true God, even if it meant that they would be burned to death. And yet we see God act in a dramatic way as he saves them 
from the fiery furnace because of their faith. Now what each one of these stories has in common with the others is that God is the main character. I mean, after all, if God had not chosen Abraham, we wouldn't be talking about him today. We wouldn't even know his name, would we? If God had not chosen Moses, we wouldn't know his name either. If God hadn't chosen Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, we wouldn't know their names. And if God hadn't chosen Esther, we wouldn't know hers either. In other words, the story of the Old Testament, Esther's story included, is about God's plan of redemption and how even though the people that he had set apart for himself were constantly sinning against him, God keeps his promise to them in three different ways. In Deuteronomy 28, we see this laid out. God declares that he will keep his promise regarding the blessings of obedience. So we find that when God's people obey, as in the days of King David, they prosper. God blesses them and they prosper. Well, God also declares that he will keep his promise regarding the curses of disobedience. And so when the people disobey God, God curses them with disease and other trials. They're absorbed by the enemies of God and assimilated into pagan cultures. This is exactly what we see happening in the Babylonian captivity and in, uh, now in, you know, under Persian rule. But you know, God keeps his promise in another way, doesn't he? Even though God punishes his people for their disobedience, just as our catechism says that in this life there are consequences for our sin, God never allows his people to be destroyed. He always saves them. And he saves them so that his promise to bring salvation through the Jews, through the root of Jesse, will come to pass. So it's in this way that the story of Esther, just as all of the other stories in the Bible, points to our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful to save his own. The salvation story in Esther is a picture of how God has saved us permanently through his son, our Lord. The story of Esther is about the splendor of our faithful king. And so as we retell this beautiful story over the next few months, God is inviting us to discover the evidence of his hand in our own lives. So what is your story? What is your story? Is your story about you or is it about God? Are you the main character or is God the main character? Or are you attracted to the splendor of the ways of the world rather than God's ways? Or does God's splendor describe your life? Does God's splendor describe your life? And so all of that is by way of introduction to this story of Esther. In Esther chapter 1, the story begins with the introduction of King Ahasuerus. He is more commonly known by his Greek name Xerxes, Probably because it's a whole lot easier to say. But we're going to stick with Ahasuerus because that's who the author, uh, which is probably Mordecai, by the way, one of the major players in this story. Uh, this is what Mordecai calls him, so we're going to stick with Ahasuerus. And here's what we're going to learn in chapter 1. Human splendor. Human splendor is only skin deep. 
And that's true no matter who we are. We can be the best in our field. We can be the one who, who scores the most points or the, the leader of the free world, the king of Persia, or have the highest IQ or be the richest person who ever lived. But that doesn't change the fact that we're all fallible, sinful people, people who need a savior. And so in the first five, uh, nine verses of Esther, we'll see the king's splendor. And we'll know by the end that we can put splendor in quotes. And then second, in verses 10 through 22, we're going to see the king's smallness. And so the king's splendor in verses 1 through 9. These first nine verses of Esther lay out before us the bewildering status and wealth, and by implication, the power of King Ahasuerus. We would probably tremble to be in his presence because he really did have a lot of power over people. His kingdom is made up of 127 provinces and it stretches from the edge of India to the east into Egypt in the west and you can see that on the map in red. This is an area uh, that's larger than the lower 48 of the United States. And so to rule such a huge area, not to mention to rule all of the myriad of people, groups, and cultures within that area, to rule these people in a time when the fastest communication was a Pony Express-like chain of guys riding horses as fast as they can to deliver messages, to rule such a kingdom required a great deal of politicking, to say the least. And so politics is, of course, the reason why this king is throwing such a long party at his palace in Susa, in what is now southwestern Iran. He wanted every one of his officials and, and 127 governors and all of his noblemen to understand his vast wealth and power. And so he puts all of that splendor and wealth on display at a feast that lasts for six months to remind them of who's really in charge. And so in Esther 4, uh, verse 4 of, of Esther chapter 1, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. That sounds like quite a party, quite a feast. This party is designed to buy loyalty and support, essentially. Everybody who is there would understand this, but everybody there, like most human beings without a strong moral compass, namely God, would be willing to be bought if it meant that their life was going to be better for them circumstantially. If it would go well for them, they're willing to go along with things and to be uh, mesmerized and lured in by this supposed favor and splendor of the king. Now you see, King Ahasuerus is going to need their loyalty. And the reason for this is that we know from our history books that King Ahasuerus is planning uh, to carry out vengeance on the Greeks because they defeated his, his father Darius. You see, the Greeks had always been a real sore spot to the Persians, a real trouble spot. They were constantly rebelling and causing trouble. And so a King Ahasuerus means to settle the matter once and for all by burning Athens. And he's going to attempt to do so in only three years. And so when things move only at the speed of a horse, he's already probably planning uh, his attack. And so we can only imagine all of the wheeling and dealing that's going on uh, during this six months of partying. 
And while they're there during this, these six months, everything that the partiers are touching or sitting on or drinking from or walking on is priceless beyond measure. These were the kinds of things that a lesser host would, would put away for safekeeping out of, out of the eyes of those who might have sticky fingers. But King Ahasuerus he not only puts them on display, but he uses them like common dinnerware or cheap furniture from Walmart. And so he's not so much worried about barbecue stains on his golden couches. What he's worried about is impressing the right people with his splendor. If he can win them over, then he can rule the empire and accomplish everything that he wants to do. If he can win them over, he will have the ultimate power over his kingdom. But you know, six months of partying, sometimes that's just not enough, is it? Sometimes it's just, uh, just, just not enough. And so in verse 5, we see the, the king throw another party, another feast, this time for a week. But this time it's for the people in Susa itself. Apparently, all of the officials and so on have left. Susa wasn't a large city. Uh, and probably the king was often not there uh, because he was off fighting wars and so on, as he will be soon with the Greeks. So it's a place that, that the king visits on occasion, and he's got other places throughout the empire. So this is the after-party party for the staff, essentially. It's kind of like the party after the Academy Awards or whatever. This is when the already drunk guy stands up on the table and holds his, his overflowing cup aloft and says, party on, dudes, party on. This is really the kind of atmosphere that is being instilled here. In verse 7, we learn, uh, we, we learn that probably what his guests prized the most was what the king was giving them, and that is free, unlimited drinks an unstoppable spigot of alcohol. And so King Ahasuerus encourages his people to drink as much as they want to. In verse 7 and 8, drinks were served in golden vessels. Just to pause for a moment and think of drinking anything, even just plain old water, from a vessel that might be in our uh, economy worth $250,000 or half a million or maybe a million. I mean, these things that, that the king is, is offering drink and food in are very expensive. And so these drinks are served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, which is simply to say uh, it was an unlimited supply. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Now we can just almost stop right there and guess what's going to happen next, can't we? This is like a fraternity party. You give a bunch of, of men unlimited free drinks and we know where this is going to go. We know that this is going to devolve into bad decisions and bad behavior. 
But before we get there, it's interesting, isn't it, that this king of such unimaginable splendor and power, the ruler of 127 provinces stretching for thousands and thousands of miles, this man who is setting out to defeat the Greeks with his military might, whose mind is surely burdened by very large-scale issues, it's interesting that he feels the need to micromanage something as trivial as how much a person drinks at his party. Well, here's how a pastor and professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary sums up this king's micromanagement. Because after all, what the king is striving for here is absolute power. So this professor says, By, but power that must regulate conformity at this level inevitably invites petty bureaucracy. Real power does not consist in regulating such detailed myutia. In fact, the tendency to regulate such details is actually a sign of weakness, not power. And that's true, isn't it? When we think about it, this is exactly the experience of Pastor Ovidio in, in Romania uh, and millions of others who were behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. The state tried to micromanage their lives. The state, in its weakness, was afraid of its own people. Micromanagement is simply a sign that the king's splendor really isn't that deep at all. It's only skin deep. It's only on the surface. It's very shallow. And what's about to happen, which is the inevitable result of free unlimited drinks, confirms the shallow nature of his splendor. Because in it, his character is revealed. And so in verse 9, Queen Vashti, the king's wife, she's given a party for all the women uh, in another part of the palace. And the reason for this is this was Persian custom to separate the men and the women to keep things in order. This was part of the way they did things. And so as we move on, we're going to see that the queen is about to destroy the veneer of character and power that the king's splendor was meant to convey. And this brings us to the king's smallness in verses 10 through 22. All of this drinking is definitely going to bring on bad behavior. It's inevitable, and here it is. King Ahasuerus orders his wife, the queen, and let this sink in. He orders his wife, the queen, who by the very nature of her status is supposed to be given every measure of respect and dignity in that culture, the king orders his wife, Queen Vashti, to come out and put herself on display for a crowd of drunken men. Now there's some debate among scholars as to whether the king meant for her to come out wearing only her crown in verse 11. But whether that's true or not uh, doesn't matter because the reason that he wanted her to come out and put herself on display is abundantly clear. In order to show the peoples, in verse 11, the, and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. It doesn't really take a whole lot to put two and two together here, does it? The king, the king wants to strip her of her dignity and to treat her as an object for the general pleasure of a bunch of lustful, drunken men. Queen Vashti throws a big old ugly stain on the, queen's or on the, on the uh, king's splendor here. This is like mud on white linen. She refuses to allow the king to dismantle her dignity in verse 12. 
she actually says no to the king. Now that's a big deal. The king's orders are supposed to be irrefutable and absolute. As Americans, we might have a little bit of a hard time understanding this because even in our U.S. military, it's permissible to refuse an order wherein you're, you're told to commit a crime. We openly refute as well the powers that be in our country on Facebook and everywhere else. We've seen a lot of that in the last 10 years or so. And the reason for that is because we have certain inalienable rights written into our constitution, but not so in Persia in 483 BC. When, when the Persian king gives an order, no matter how immoral it is, you must obey it. There's no question here. And so the king's reaction is to be enraged. He's the one who's been wronged in his mind. In his mind, Queen Vashti exists only for his pleasure. And saying no to him is not an option. Even though everybody present understands the line that the king has crossed here, Queen Vashti is the criminal. Her crime is disobedience. And that means she needs to be punished. And so in the following verses, the king's wisest counselors, these men who are so accustomed to saying what the king wants to hear rather than challenge him, they concoct a punishment for Queen Vashti. After making a series of absolutely ridiculous accusations and claims about how Queen Vashti's refusal is just going to disrupt the order of the whole empire. There are going to be wives running around following the queen's example and rebelling against their husbands and lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my, this is terrible. It's amazing how one syllable can cause so much crisis with a man who is supposed to be invincible and absolutely powerful. And so one of the king's advisors, Mamukin, asked King Ahasuerus to write an edict that will ban the queen from his presence forever and ever, strip her of her title, and give it to someone better than she, in verse 19. In other words, give it to someone more compliant. Well, not even more compliant, but absolutely compliant. And so King Ahasuerus writes this edict to the whole kingdom in all of the various languages that every man be master in his own household. But here's the irony to all of this. In the king's overblown effort to save face, he's actually advertising to the whole world how weak and petty he is. His splendor in reality is very small. It's skin deep. Because Queen Vashti has proved that even a woman can defy the king. When I was in high school, my family knew the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and his family because they went to our church. And they hired me uh, to photograph their son's wedding, which I did. And I did all right, given the fact that I was in high school and still very wet behind the ears. I had very little experience under my belt, but I did all right. I did okay. And after all, they knew that they were hiring a high school student to photograph their son's wedding. But inevitably, I got a call from them a few months after the wedding. Uh, they were summoning me to their official quarters to come to the palace. And 
they wanted me to come there because they wanted their money back because they were dissatisfied with the pictures. Well, before I went, my, my dad was very supportive. He reassured me that my pictures were fine. And so my dad tutored me in how to say no to the wife of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You see, they fully expected that I would be so overwhelmed by the grandeur and power of his status that there was absolutely no question that I would have to comply. But you see, human splendor is in reality very small. What this experience demonstrated to my dad and me was this man's smallness, not his splendor, of how petty he was being. You see, a human being's power is never absolute, even if he's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I can say that, I guess, because I'm not in the military. But you know, when it comes to God, it's a different story. There are similarities with King Ahasuerus, just like that king, God is a sovereign king whose laws and orders may not be disobeyed. If they are disobeyed, there is punishment. And ultimately, if we deny Christ, eternal punishment. But unlike the drunken whims of a lustful king Ahasuerus, our king's decrees reflect his holiness and his love, his care for us, his mercy for us and his grace and the fact that all that he commands and requires of us is designed for our benefit. And so what we find is that, that God is inviting us to a very different kind of feast. This is one that's not designed to impress, but it's one that is designed to bless this is the banquet that he will prepare for us on the last day when our Lord comes to gather his bride, his church, unto himself. Isaiah 25, 6 speaks of this banquet. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make, a, uh, make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. When our king summons his bride, the church, to his feast, we're going to come willingly, not out of compulsion. Those who refuse to come, he will send them to where they need to go. But you see, when we come willingly, enamored by his grace and mercy, drawn to him because of that, our king will not expose our shame and strip us of our dignity. The true king will lavish his grace and mercy upon his bride and clothe her in the beautiful garments of his holiness. King Ahasuerus saw his bride as simply an object of pleasure, a beautiful thing to look at. When our faithful king takes us as his bride, we need to understand that we are the opposite of beautiful. And that's because our bodies and our minds and our hearts are distorted and deformed and corrupted by sin. We are not an attractive, lovely bride. And yet, even though by nature we are completely repulsive, our Lord will put us on display 
to display his splendor. Here's a very familiar passage in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is how our king treats us. He gives himself up for us. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. Isn't that incredible news? Isn't that the most hopeful thing that you could hear today? So let this be a reminder to every single one of us that as followers of Christ, we are the people of God. And God means for us to put his true splendor on display in this world, namely as we are vessels of his mercy and his grace. You know, our biggest temptation these days is to try to be, in a way, like King Ahasuerus. We, we try to dazzle people with worldly power in politics and in business and, and with our, our, our status and our pursuit of wealth and even our burning desire to be right all the time. And so we need this reminder more than ever that we are God's people. And he is the one who is splendorous. He is the one who has majesty. He is the one who is full of glory and deserves our every ounce of honor. We are people set apart for his glory. We are his most precious possession because after all, look at the price that he paid for us. He sent his son to die for us, to forgive us of our sins, to save us from his wrath. That's what splendor is, brothers and sisters. And since we have Christ, we need nothing else. We need nothing else. The splendor of his grace and mercy is far more than enough. Amen. Let's pray. Holy, gracious, mighty, magnificent, sovereign, majestic God. We thank you and praise you for your splendor. We thank you, Lord, that your splendor, unlike that of the world, is trustworthy and true. That your splendor gives life. That your splendor makes peace between us and our Father in heaven. And so, Father, we pray that as we live in these tempting days, as we live in this dark hour, as we live in this world that has gone to the pagans. We pray, Father, that you would help us to stand apart, to be set apart for your glory, always, always, always full of grace and mercy and truth as we tell people about who you really are. And so, Father, all honor and glory belong to you. We give you all of our praise as we bow before you right now in this day and in every day to come. Hallelujah and amen.